I'm Dr Rod Lamberts and this is To Be Continued, a podcast from the Australian National University that extracts the literary gold from Australia's newspapers in the 19th and early 20th century. Our old newspapers are treasure troves of forgotten literature, crammed full of stories offering glimpses of a past, both familiar and foreign. The gun lay just in front of me, the butt resting by my foot, the muzzle inclined forward across the seat in front. A slight elevation of the butt and muzzle would cover the dot. There would not be time to bring the butt to the shoulders, no time to aim. Nay, in advancing my hand to the trigger, as I was stealthily doing, I was hastening his attack, for a deep growl escaped him and he churned the scum that covered his jaws into a viscid froth. Ah, he is at me, gathering himself into a ball and uttering a hoarse, vicious roar rather than a bark. He bounds forward. I pull the trigger, but the next instant am struck down. My head is driven with fearful force against the gunwale, and I become senseless. You've just listened to an excerpt from The Marvellous Island, published in the Sydney Mail and New South Wales Advertiser in 1888. Why? Well, because in this episode of To Be Continued, we're talking about children's fiction. But I'm just a host, and what we need is an expert. So in this episode, I'm joined by Associate Professor Christine Maruzzi. She's the Associate Professor of Writing and Literature at the School of Communication and Creative Arts at Deakin University. Hello, Chris. Hi. It's lovely to be here. Children's fiction. Now, first question I have is, when I first heard we were going to talk about this topic, I wasn't sure whether we were talking fiction for children or fiction by children, and it seems like we're dealing with a bit of both. No, you're absolutely right. Um, Look, this discussion we're having today is that we actually get to look at both, and that's kind of cool because it gives us an opportunity to see not only what adults think about children, but also what children are interested in writing on their own. So what you brought us today are stories from Australian newspapers. Um, Is there something special about how children's stories were distributed in other countries like England around the same time? So the British context is actually really interesting. It's largely where the idea of periodicals for children originated, and that started in the late uh, 1700s. We have some of the first, first periodicals that are being published specifically for children, they're typically very moralistic and and often religious. By the middle of the 19th century, though, we see some significant shifts in terms of periodicals for children. And there's a, a, a range of other texts that children are reading and that are detailing all sorts of stories of crime and, and, and violence. Children are reading them because they're quite exciting and, and sort of the the... the the people who are interested in making sure that children have high quality reading materials quite reasonably, I think, say maybe there's an opportunity for us to be producing texts that are more suitable for child readers. And then only sort of at the end of the at the end of the 19th century do we start to see um, children's 
books and then these children's columns really showing up in, in any significant way as sort of we've got enough children, enough child readers and enough kind of probably wealth in the colonies to be able to justify um, the, the publication and purchase of these magazines. And so why is this so different to what's happening in Australia? Like, Why are we seeing so many children's stories published in newspapers in children's sections or pages or columns, however these parts of the paper were called? These children columns are here and there are not there is not an equivalent set of children's periodicals as there was being published both in the United States and in England because of the school readers. It's an important aspect of Australian children's reading culture, um, basically from about the 1890s. Every state was producing its own set of readers and you had to buy it every month. So so the money that you might have had to pay for a the latest issue of a children's magazine in which the entirety of the magazine was was all aimed at young readers. That penny was going to the school reader because you were required to have it so that you could go to school. Um, and, and that's why what we're seeing, particularly around these children's columns, is that we will just give you a, you know, more a page in, a, in an adult publication um, to give you some children's content because the stuff that's in the school readers is much more um, maybe a bit more what you were kind of imagining might be here. It's, it's you know, it's um, it's much more informational. Um, there's a lot of British content, like you'll see poetry from Wordsworth, and um, you'll see, you know, some really what I would call high high canon kind of British writing uh, alongside, you know, how the Melbourne sewer system works. Right. Uh, so there, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that if we were using if that that doesn't get um, surveyed in this to be continued database, because, of course, it's not appearing in the press in quite the same way. But that's where all the boring stuff was, I would largely say. And so here's where we get the genuine. We want to attract child readers who are with content that we think is genuinely going to be entertaining. So speaking of that, one of the stories is called The Theft of a Day. Yes. By Vera Dwyer. And she won a competition. She was 16. She won. And she won a, a competition, a, a story writing competition. What, what if we do have to give it up? Lena said. She was 15, the oldest of the four. Theft of a Day follows four girls. No, Rennie responded. We'll manage it somehow. They live in a house in the countryside that's soon to be sold by their uncle. I've received instructions from your uncle and guardian in Melbourne, he began, to settle the whole affair as soon as possible. He finds it absolutely impossible to meet the maze of financial difficulties surrounding the estate. So they concoct a plan to trap the lawyer making the sale in a shed. Quick, she said in a tense whisper and Cora followed close on her heels. Then they seized the ladder and dragged it away and the lawyer was a prisoner in the old workshop. And it turned out to be an excellent plan because their uncle had a fortunate change of circumstances. And they all set off across the orchard to liberate the unfortunate old gentleman. And the prize was to be published? Was, was there more to that prize, do you know? Or is it just you, you're now a published writer? They, I don't think so in this particular case. It was really just to get published. Right. But some... The, these competitions are pretty exciting, right? They're, they're always this really interesting opportunity to think about how children were, were engaging with the magazine and the things that the magazines then thought were important to engage those child readers. So sometimes um, there wouldn't actually be 
be monetary prizes or sometimes you would the huh. children would receive a copy of a book huh. so there were there were kind of a variety of strategies but in this case i believe it was just it was just publication and then Vera Dwyer um after the publication of this story um went on to be a a a writer for children who published in novel form and this was not uncommon it seems or at least there were more she wasn't the only one to go on to do this starting off here and then going on to be no that's right that's right look it was relatively rare, all things considered. Most children writing stories to these magazines just were doing it for fun because kids do these things and that's and that's kind of cool. But these story competitions, although most children most of the time wouldn't have gone on to do anything, did become a vehicle by which really excellent contributions and writers got some exposure that then might have given them um, further opportunities in the publishing field. Right, right. Let's move on to another another one of the stories. I don't know which way to go, but the one that for off, I don't know, in part many of the wrong reasons that really grabbed me was by Ethel Turner, The Convalescence of Taffy Fonden. Yes. The story's about a sick young boy who's stuck in his bedroom all day, bored out of his mind. The doctor said is how you were to be kept low and after cook-making you that nice beef tea and broth and arrowroot, and me mixing you jugs of lemon and toast water. Susan looked appalled at his ingratitude. Hijinks, of course, follow involving a monkey in a bag, getting food delivered, like a proto-Uber Eats, and all at the cost of the sanity of the servants in the house. Taffy gave that up and shrieked, Susan! Cook! Johnson! At the top of his lusty young lungs. They flew upstairs in terror. He took worse, thought Susan. He's set himself on fire, said Cook. Whatever's the matter, Master Keith, panted Susan. Promise you won't tell, said Taffy. Well, it'll be April Fool's Day in nine months again. Um, it really nailed some decent prejudice, racist, sexist and classist points all in quite a short story. I was very impressed with that. <laughs> it was a nice little grab bag. Um... What do you think of that story? How does that fit into the the bigger world that you're investigating? Yeah, it's it's yes, and indeed all of your all of your comments, right? <laughs> uh, as I'm as I'm looking at this story, it's it it's it is problematic. But let me tell you, it's not as problematic as the one we decided we weren't going to include. <laughs> it's an interesting challenge, as you'll uh, appreciate, I'm sure, that when you're looking at materials from Days gone by. What do you do with some of these? Yeah, some of these prejudice prejudices. I think what's what's interesting about this story is the way in which it just highlights all those things, right? And the way in which it's totally uncomplicated in Ethel Turner's world, right? Of course, you're going to be racist in relation to migrants, and of course, you're going to treat servants in a particular way because you have servants, yeah. and and that's just how they're treated in these in these kinds of spaces, right? Yeah. Um, so, so in that sense, I think they're still useful to think through, right? We don't want to abandon those stories entirely because mm. it's important to know where we've come from and, and just the prejudices that different peoples at different times have had to encounter and um, and the ways in which, particularly, this is a text for children, right? And and so it's not only reflecting those kinds of ideas, but it's also kind of perpetuating them through 
through the fact that we've got this story written for a children's column that's going to be read by kids, right? So, so we're perpetuating those same kinds of stereotypes um, through the inclusion of these kinds of yeah. stories. And yet, so even as I read it, part of part of why I chose it was that not only does it do those things that I think we want to be thinking about and be attentive to, and the ways in which stories are racist, classist, mm. um, sexist, um, and so on, but but also, and this is kind of why I enjoyed it a little bit, is that it's doing a really good job, I think, embodying the idea of the child. Yeah. Taffy is so quintessentially childlike in those moments, right? Where he can't leave his room and they're not giving him enough food and he's jumping on the bed and he's kind of losing his mind. And, and to my mind, that was really exciting because it suggests... <laughs> important things about how some of our ideas about children haven't changed that much, right? You could so totally imagine that in the 21st century where somebody's sick and they can't go out and, and just so bored and they're just kind of losing, yeah. losing all perspective. I, and honestly, um, I, I found it very entertaining. Like it was a wildly entertaining little story. And, I, and part of the reason was because it was to modern eyes so outrageous, but also I agree with you. You, you could definitely get a feeling for that kid it flashed me back to you know my sick days in in primary school, etc. It, it's a very engaging read. It doesn't have to be perfect to not be an engaging story when you when you're including a small Italian boy with an organ and monkey came round the corner and slowly ground out Il Trovatore. A migrant child who has a monkey. You put the monkey in a bag. The moment he was released from the bag, he clawed a handful of Taffy's curly hair. And, with an inimitable sound, half chuckle, half cry, sprang agilely on the dressing table. Outrageous amounts of delicious foods being delivered to the sickbed. That fatty-looking lump of German sausage. How delicious it was after a course of insipid mutton broth. It's fantastic. Um, Also, this story, it had something, I don't know if you know this, but it really caught my eye. Lemon and toast water. Now, I'm trying to imagine what toast water would be and all I can come up with is crumbling toast into water and that doesn't sound great to me. That sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay, let's uh, let's shuffle to another one then. So, which one would you like to talk about? How about let's let's go to a little bushmaid. A series of stories that follows a girl called Nora who lives in the bush with her father. All her life, Nora had done pretty well whatever she wanted, which meant that she had lived out of doors and spent about two-thirds of her waking time on horseback. Now, as I understand it, this one was part of a, an extended series, like an ongoing sort of soap opera. Do I have that right? Oh, look, I don't know that we would call it a soap opera. I'm offended on Mary Grant Bruce's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we certainly would call it um, a serialised story. It, uh, it appeared over about six months, basically. Um, in the in the Melbourne Leader, and this one's yep. part of why I chose this is this is somewhat unusual in the sort of annals of Australian children's literature. Most of the books that appeared in novel form that were published in Australia didn't first appear as serialized fiction, which is a little bit different from what happened uh. um, in the UK. And and so this is kind of right. this, and I love magazines and and print culture so i was just really quite intrigued by what was happening with the little bush made here because it does get serialized 
over a six-month period and then appears in novel form. Most of the other fiction that was published in Australia just appeared in novel form first. Um, and also, Nora is so fabulous. Mary Grant Bruce went on to write, oh, I think there's over a dozen novels in this series. And this yeah. A Little Bushmaid became the, it was the first, it, 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 was, the, it was the novel that, that launched, launched just a really quite amazing franchise. The books continued to be republished, I think, until the 80s. That's amazing. It's kind of an amazing story and, and quite uh, relatively unique, I think, in the Australian landscape. And we've chosen excerpts here because they didn't do the racist, mm. classist stuff in quite the same explicit kind of way that the Ethel Turner, Turner story did. But one of the issues with this series is just the way that Marigat Bruce treats the Indigenous characters um, and also other peoples of color. Right, But the story itself, I think, is actually really significant in terms of creating kind of an, a quintessential Australian girl. And Nora, mm. it, 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 she's, I mean, she's quite fabulous. She's not that, she's not that well educated. And that's why I kind of wanted to choose this particular excerpt, right? It, it much is made of the fact that she's really quite outgoing. She's easy to get along with basically she's really capable on the on the property she's you know a really talented horse rider she gets along with all the animals she really is a kind of outdoor girl yeah. who really fits well into that kind of pastoral setting and and she's not too educated she's not interested in that right as for Nora's education that was of the kind best defined as a minus quantity I won't have her bothered with books too early, Mr Linton had said when the nurse had hinted on Nora's eighth birthday that it was time she began the rudiments of learning. Time enough yet. We don't want to make a bookworm of her. And so it, it sort of promotes this idea about what an Australian girl should look like and, and would be in ways that I think have had kind of long threads through sort of 20th century mm. Australian Litter fiction for children. Yeah, and it's it's quite a. I suppose it's a it's a representation of what it means to be female in this environment that would I assume is a bit unusual at the time. I mean, she's basically what we'd call a tomboy, or would have called a tomboy up until not long ago. But she's painted in a very positive light, yeah. very positive, yeah. you know, role model, etc. She's what the only the only person who could get her very stern and bereaved father to crack a smile and all these things. So she knows people. She can relate to people and bring out the you know good things in them. It's it's quite a a powerful and complex character, and I imagine particularly so for the time. Look, I think I think she is. There there are these interesting domestic moments. And by the time Nora was eleven, she knew more of cooking and general housekeeping than many girls grown up and fancying themselves ready to undertake houses of their own. She learns those domestic skills, so yeah. so she's she is interesting, and I would totally agree with you about some of those tomboy, um, some of those tomboy ideals and characteristics. But at the same time, she's she still understands that her domestic role has significance, right? Um, it's important that she be able to provide food yeah. for the men in the family if necessary, if something happens. And in sort of later episodes, we we see her being able to draw on those those sets of skills. And look, I do, I would agree indeed that she is fairly uh, unconventional for the time. Mm. But I think in that sense, she's, she's imaginary, right? 
Um, She's an idealized, imaginary, fantastic girl that nobody could ever really be. Like real Australian girls who are reading this wouldn't ever become her, but they could imagine being her. Yeah. And her imaginative potential, I think, is the really entertaining aspect of this story because she really she is engaging and she she's just kind of lovely. And it's like, I want to go along with Nora on her adventures. Yeah. She's having a fabulous time. Who wouldn't? <laughs> well, I suppose this, this is part of the reason why when I first started reading it, it, it took me a while to kind of get into the swing of the, the excerpts that, that we looked at anyway. But then I imagine seeing this going on yeah. as you got to know them. That was kind of like my sort of flippant reference to a soap opera. You'd get to know the characters and their day-to-day lives would matter to you. And not everything had to be adventurous and, and, and wild and crazy and too far removed from reality like many serialized television shows. You know, it's, it's the, the, related, the relatableness that also has the appeal plus that extra adventure that you were talking about. So it's, um, I can see it as being an extremely seductive piece of literature. Yeah, look, I think it is. And largely, the, this this series is almost kind of divorced from time, right? I think one of the things yeah. that's kind of evident in the excerpt is just how it it could almost be any time, any place, right? Um, there's there's so little reference to technology that, that it, mm. it could be any time. But there, there, there are three books that incorporate the male characters, Jim, Nora's brother, and, and Wally, his friend. They do end up joining... Um, I think they end up they end up traveling to London to join the British military as a result of the First World War. And there there's kind of an interesting moment where the dad prevents the boys from joining the AIF. Oh. And of course, he would have probably been writing these the first of these novels after Gallipoli had happened. So in a in a series that is largely atemporal, there are these actually kind of really interesting specific moments in which she engages specifically with Australian history, and the, and the children end up traveling, um, traveling to London, and and becoming involved in the war effort while the boys are off at the front, and so on. Um, so so it's kind of it, it's interesting. I think that tension between she could be the every girl, and then there are these moments where it's like, oh no, she's actually doing really specific things that are um, connected to what girls and women's roles were expected to be during during wartime yeah with some adventures though because i'm pretty sure they spent some time thwarting the german u-boat that's (laughs) or submarine that's in the waters as they're traveling to england and so so it is it is um i think you're you're right even though i was dismissive at the beginning there are some certain soap (laughs) opera like kind of tendencies in which you just sort of throw adventures into the mix um to keep your readers entertained yeah and so we should uh, and I think that strategy clearly worked because the series lasted for such a long time. Because that too, in this particular moment in Australian children's publishing history, the idea that you would have a series of, you know, 10 to 15 novels that appeared over time. Because it was a pretty extended period of time, but obviously readership yeah. was still high enough. And children were interested enough in what was happening in those stories that she was able to write and, and get subsequent novels published. Now let's let's talk about the fourth one because the fourth one is is quite different to the other three. The marvelous island, isn't it? Yes, and they put themselves into quite a predicament. I mean, what they they were hunting a turtle, weren't they? And then they found themselves on a boat adrift. A little sun dried, heat blistered boat without mast or sail on a glassy sea under a vertical sun. The heated air is throbbing as though it boiled in the fierce noon blaze. 
In the boat, two lads, neither of them more than 16 years of age, hollow-eyed and thin of frame, whose parched mouths and dried, cracked lips toll of unslaked thirst. They're three or four days out of water and, yeah, they're not in a great situation. It's so fantastic. Like, what exactly has transpired such that these two 16-year-olds are like... It's also kind of a bit hallucinatory like it's kind of wild we get so little context in terms of situating yeah. the boys and what exactly has happened to them it's a it's quite a un, it's very different i mean i'm just going to go with that and ask for your comments very different to the others absolutely and so there's a couple things i was really looking for a story that was obviously and demonstrably written by a man um and mm. so when I came across this, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. We see other stories that appear, um, but they often are because they're being reprinted from other children's periodicals elsewhere. Uh, and typically, typically, a lot of them are coming from the States. Mm. So uh, I wanted a story that was written by an Australian male, but the, the difficulty of that, for in particular in relation to writing for children, is that it was a highly feminized culture, and most most of the fiction that's that's being written um, is being written by women. So when right. I came across this story, I'm like, oh, who is Saunders Nichols? And it turns out that he's an Australian journalist who'd been working for the Sydney Mail for quite a long time. And I thought it was an interesting story because it doesn't look like the other stories, right? Mm. And and in that sense, it's doing something. I think you know you. It fits into the boys' adventure fiction genre. Yeah. So it's of a type that is kind of recognizable to child readers in the 1880s. And it is really, really different, right? We, we all of a sudden, we've got no domestic space here at all. Um, we've got two boys adrift on a boat. It's just, I mean, it's fabulous, right? And, <laughs> and quite, quite exciting and not quite sure what's happening because he's not quite sure what's happening um, you know, in terms of the hallucinations, but I, I think it does really important work in terms of helping us to understand just how gendered some of the some of the writing for children could be. And I mean, we're going back. This story then is is ten to fifteen years earlier than the than the other stories I selected, but it's really interesting for that reason. I think uh, not to say that fiction at the turn of the century is less gendered. I think it still is, but. But this is doing something within a particular genre where boys go off and have adventures. Yeah. And so just from the outset, just know how different this story is going to be compared to the others that I selected because it's really not in that domestic space at all because boys are expected to be out and about. And and so, and there they are. And the, the excerpt you sent ends on a real cliffhanger too. This is clearly inviting you to make sure that you come along next Saturday to read the next chapter of the story, right? So in that sense, it's doing those quintessential things that serialized fiction needs to do in which you hook your readers in and you make sure that they're going to come back next week. I was, I was tempted to dive straight into Trove and try and find the next uh, the next issue because I just wanted to know what happened. Right? Yeah, they're all very engaging in their own way. There's, there's no question. And in fact, I mean, we've done episodes on, on bushfires and ghosts and things which are also engaging, but these really... I don't know, maybe it's the child in me. They're all 
very easy to engage with, easy to kind of get involved and, and, and sucked into the tale, which is, I think is superb. They are entertaining, aren't they? So children's fiction was predominantly written by women, right? So it was it considered not serious enough for men or was it, so to speak, just women's work? Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's a really interesting question. I think that there's a long genealogy to the history of women writing for children. And it certainly emerges out of that sense that women were the natural caregivers and also kind of the moral center of the home. So if you wanted to make sure your children were being raised to be morally upright and religious and and so on, women were the ones to do that. And so you can see how they were then turning their attention um, to writing for children. But at the same time, there was an ongoing stigma and women weren't really able to publish in a significant way for adults. And so it also was a vehicle by which women could earn their living by writing for children and men weren't eager to occupy that space. But I think by the turn of the 20th century, things had started to shift. So, I mean, Ethel Turner, Mary Grass Bruce wasn't as much part of that kind of space because she didn't live in Sydney. But I think in Sydney in particular, there's a bit of a, there is a literary culture that's being produced. And so, I mean, Ethel Turner, Louise Mack, there's a number of women that are all writing in and around children's texts. And while they may have been discriminated against, I suppose, in, in certain kinds of ways, I think it, it wasn't something that was to be, to be ashamed of. It certainly was um, a contribution and I think that they were generally fairly well respected for the writing that they were doing. They receive positive reviews in the press for these books that they're writing. And um, I think, you know, and, and, and sometimes I, I guess I would caution against assuming that there's a real solid line between, oh, I'm, I'm a writer for children and, and that's all that I am. Um, some, of these, some of these writers are writing both texts for adults as well as writing for children. So so I think by the turn of the 20th century, what we have is actually an environment that was increasingly welcoming of women writers for children and women writers in general, because we certainly see that, that women are increasingly being published throughout the 20th century. Were these, were, were any of the children's fiction sort of themes or authors or particular events or characters described that were controversial in their day that caused a lot of difficulty, furor or debate? There are some examples, but they they tend to be in sort of in in children's periodicals where you've got the entire periodical is is a children's text. Um, there have been some I've seen some interesting correspondence in in a girls ma- magazine out of the UK where the girls really want to talk about suffrage, okay. and the editor really doesn't want to. Um, ah. She wants to be quite apolitical. And the girls themselves are writing in saying, no, this is an important issue for us and we want to talk about it. But you just generally don't see that kind of thing because because either two, two, two possibilities. One is that it's just not being written because they know it won't be published yeah. um, or it's being censored because it's it's too controversial. We kind of touched on this in passing, but. Indigenous content, reference to Indigenous characters, people, situations, was there anything particularly stand out in, in children's fiction, children's literature that would differ from other kinds of stories we'd have seen in newspapers at the time? Or is it sort of, you know, same, same? 
Look, I as far in my in my reviewing the content that's showing up in to be continued, I've seen almost no indigenous content whatsoever. Right. Um, the stories for children just simply don't include indigenous characters. Um, as I mentioned just briefly about the little bushmaid, there is they, there is a farmhand in a little bushmaid. His name's Billy, and he is a ubiquitous presence mm-hmm. on the farm. And that presence is embodied by a number of kind of racist tropes about yeah. his work ethic and and so on. But in fact, he's he's fairly unusual for that. Most of the most of the stories, I mean, they're written, they're they're being written by predominantly white middle class women and or some white middle class men. But largely, they just they're reflecting their own experiences. I think of children and childhood and and those don't tend to include indigenous characters mm. at all. Okay. That, that, that's kind of interesting in itself because a lot of the stories in other kinds of genres do, but often, yeah, the, the representations of indigenous characters are, as you expect, not, let's say, not too flattering or uh, open-minded. There are some, a fairly limited number of, of children's novels that are written that feature indigenous characters, generally not protagonists. Mm. You know, they they typically are so connected to this myth of the dying race that they just perpetuate sort of a single sense of what it meant to be indigenous that um, they they end up appearing fairly repetitive. And interestingly, mm. that's quite different in other settler colo- colonial environments because there's some counterexamples in New Zealand fiction where the indigenous characters have much more agency. And so it is quite interesting, I think, what the Australian kind of publishing industry produced for children in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was anything that is going to include indigenous characters typically just is sort of perpetuating that mm. that mythic understanding of what was going to what was going to happen to indigenous characters and really so very very few there's just so few that that there's not even really an opportunity for any kind of counter narrative to exist there from from the database that that you've been trawling through are there particular authors or stories that you would recommend to people who are listening like you really got to go and check out so-and-so's work or this particular tale for people who want to follow up and do more well look i i think the one thing that i would kind of recommend if you're looking to just do a little bit of kind of playing and 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 circling through trove to see what else is there what you could do is to go check out princess spinaway's department mm-hmm. in the australian town and country and and that was just the name of their column was princess spinaway's department but that's where the <laughs> story from vera dwyer appeared the prize story and it was a pretty i think in comparison perhaps to many of the other corners it's it's got a real literary culture that's the one that was edited by Ethel Turner mm. um Vera Dwyer goes on to become you know a writer sort of based on the reputation she built by contributing to Princess Spinaway's department and i think it could be just kind of fun to have a bit of a play there uh, to just sort of see the range of materials and how children, one of the things that we didn't talk about because it's outside of scope is just how engaging some of the correspondence can be in these columns, right? right. The columns where they were really actively encouraging chi- children to write in give us this really fabulous understanding of what children were interested in writing and what they thought might end up being published. And I think that's that's sort of a really fabulous, exciting opportunity to just think about what we don't know or what we've understood or sort of assumed rather, what we've under, what we've assumed about children in the late 19th yeah. century, early 20th century, and the extent to which maybe 
their contributions themselves can help to expand our own sense of what it was like to be a child in the past. That's a great point. So the little bushmaid that we we discussed is commented on by this young girl named Jessica, who wrote back into the magazine to say that A Little Bushmaid is her favorite story. And she she actually got five shillings for that because that was the winning contribution. And that's, I mean, it's it's those sorts of moments then that become very exciting that the To Be Continued database, I think, helps to, to bring up for us that there is this range of fiction. And at the same time as we've actually got these ongoing conversations happening in these children's columns that are sort of based on and become a springboard for children to engage with the fiction that's being offered to them. And uh, those, I mean, those, those moments are gold, right? Where you actually have Jessica saying, this is my favorite story. I mean, how, how much better can you get to hear from a child in that moment who, who is using the forum of the periodical itself and the children's column to write back into it and, and say that this was important to me. Thank you very much, uh, Christine Maruzzi. That's, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed having a chat about this and, um, the world of children's literature from over 100 years ago is much more alive with interesting stuff than I expected. So thanks heaps. Thank you. You too. Great. Okay, bye for now. If you'd like to hear the full stories we've spoken about today, we've published a special bonus episode with them read out for you wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell someone about it. We'd love as many people as possible to hear these amazing stories. In our next episode, it's time to stand and deliver as we look at portrayals of that iconic Australian outlaw, the Bushranger. 